have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 2. As the band comes down. Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week, I got the opportunity to preach at uh, a real good friend of mine's church. The Refuge City Church, they meet in downtown Dayton at the Black Box Theater. It's pretty cool. This little improv theater, pretty neat. Uh, preach there. But it wasn't like preaching at home. Just, uh, as much as I love John and, and through him care greatly for his people, there's still that these people, you know, they're not the people God has given me and Rusty to shepherd, so so much more fun preaching and teaching to a people that you know. Um, so much more fun doing that. You will don't get your hopes up, but I I preached for fifty minutes at Refuge City Church, which obviously is much shorter than our average, but. Uh, that's 20 minutes of their loss, uh, is why the, the way I look at that. <laughs> All right, so here we are, Nehemiah. Rusty brought the house down last week, I heard, from multiple people. So I'm encouraged that in my leave he can teach and the sheep are fed and you all are encouraged. And So uh, I, I'm glad for those things, uh, glad for you all. Um, the lives that were impacted last week. All right, so I'm not going to do much catching us up here, but just for a few brief moments, as we think about a few things, we're talking about this idea of being a reformer. Nehemiah is often preached as a leadership book, and there are certainly good leadership things I think we can learn from there. Matter of fact, today we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about this idea of how the mission gets led. How do we lead in the mission. So we are, yes, we are going to address this idea of leading, but I don't think Nehemiah is primarily about leading so much as it is really about God's leading and what God is doing in the book of Nehemiah. But we've thought about this idea that we are reformers, and I want to bring our attention to is we are reformers as God is the ultimate reformer. God in His mercy, through the power of the cross, has reformed our hearts and continues to bring about this vision of reformation for our lives and this earth. So God is the initial or the beginning reformer. And we see God initiating His reformation immediately at the fall. God begins reforming His people, bringing about are having a vision for the way things should be and bringing that into existence over time. So God had a vision, I would say, even before time began to make a people for Himself. This would involve a people that would then fall, that would you know, seek sin instead of 
the, the creator, and then God would then begin reforming this. But, but God's plan all along has been to make a people for himself, a people that would love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, lest we forget, not because God needed it, but because that was God's plan and God's desire. God was not lacking worship, so he, must, he needed to create earth and create a people. And he was completely satisfied. But God in His graciousness has chosen to make a people for Himself. So now, as we continue thinking through this thought, God is the ultimate reformer. Now, because we are image bearers of God, we too bear His mark of reformation. We bear His mark. We bear a couple marks. Uh, just for initial thought here. Mark number one, we've been reformed. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has reformed you. There's a sense in which you're already completely reformed. You stand justified. The job finished before God. That's what we call like the already. And then the not yet is the fact that we're still struggling with the flesh. And we're still in the process of being reformed. God is still changing that which is not true in our lives but that, to that which should be true of our lives. And so thinking of Rusty's sermon last week, what has changed since last week? What has changed over the past week? What has been reformed in your life? What has God changed over this past week? Maybe over this past few days? Maybe in the past few moments? What has God changed since last week? What has changed since last week? So Mark, one of those marks being that we've been reformed, another mark of God's reformation in our heart is that we now seek to bring about the same kind of reformation in the world around us, particularly the people around us that have not felt the reforming work of God in their heart. These are marks. These are not, these are not options. These are things that happen because God has reformed us. God is working in us. We now seek to bring about the same reformation, both to those around us who need reformation and to the world around us too. Because God is not just concerned about people, although that is a primary concern, but God is concerned about His earth as well and the cities in which His people dwell. So God, as He is leading us through reformation in the same way we are all meant, so in the same way we are all meant to reform we're also all meant to lead in reformation in some way or another. So I want to talk about the idea of leading in reformation, leading a reformation, leading the reforming of your life and the people around you as this is evidence of God's mark of leading in restoration and we as image bearers of God. So as we think about this idea of leading, I want, I want, I want us to kind of zero in here a little bit. Every person has to lead in some capacity. It's not just a male thing. It's not just a church leader thing. It's not just a boss or someone with a greater title. We're all called to lead in some way. Some of you lead as parents. You have kids. Men, women, even grandparents exercise leading of younger children. Some of us lead as house gathering leaders. There's a handful of us here who lead in our in-home small group stuff. That's leading. You're leading them. Some of you lead as husbands in your home. 
We all lead in some capacity. Jesus commands us, and think about Matthew 28, Jesus commands us to teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, trying to help us see that if you understand that Jesus' command is more than simply a relaying of information, that he means to teach and to teach them to obey, that at some level you're going to lead people to obey. You're going to lead them from one place to another. We're all called to be leaders of reformation, but each of us in our own context in ways that will look very, very different. We're all going to lead, but it's going to look very different. Anytime you are taking someone from where they should not be to where they should be, you are leading them. Okay? Anytime you're taking someone from where they are not, where they should not be to where they should be, you're leading them. Taking someone far from God to be close to God is leading them. Alright. So with that thought out there, take the next thought here before we really jump into this text. I want to remind us that we are all exiles living in a pagan nation. Okay? We're all exiles living in a foreign ruled nation. I mean, yes, God is ultimately sovereign over our country, but we do not have a theocracy here. God is God is not the one on the physical throne, if you will, of the United States, or the state, or the city, or any of those such things. God is still sovereign, but we are exiles in a pagan nation. We see this all around us. We see sin all around us, even in our own lives. But our society is demoralizing at such a rapid rate. Where, I mean, if you look at England and the post-Christian cultures going on, like, that's right where we're headed. And our society is, is, is I mean, I, I hesitate to, to dramatize it more. I mean, society has always been demoralizing. The world is going greater towards sin. and God's people are being pulled out of the darkness. And that's, that's been happening for, for, for millennium, millennial, millennia, millennia, yeah, whatever. Anyways, I want to remind us, or to point out to us, as we think about this exiles in a pagan nation, that, that the days of hope, placed in Christian presidents are long gone, right? They, they never were, and they should have never been there anyways, but they're certainly not there now. The days of hope placed in legislation that would glorify God, I, I hate to say, are long gone. Now, let me back up. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote rightly. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote in ways that honor God. I'm not denying that. We need to do those things. We need to be proactive in those things. But the idea of placing our hope in that, as the church has for many decades, it's long gone. Some people just haven't caught that idea yet. See, we've been trying these things. We've been trying to to reign and rule through the government and, and forcing morality on people. And you see where this has gotten us. So what you've done is kind of set up these limits, these laws, and but we cannot, like morality, like true morality and people living righteously doesn't come. Like something has to happen on the inside. 
So even as we think about Exodus and what we just read about in Exodus, yes, God is establishing these laws. Yes, God is established for the good of the people. But it's the people who, with new hearts inside of the nation of Israel, that will truly live out the expression of what it means to be God's people. But as we think about this idea of living in a sinful nation, we have to think, how do we live as a city within a city? Okay? How do we live as a people within a greater people? This is what's going on in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, there is legislation and, and morality being written in the laws and things like that, all going all over Nehemiah, just like it's happening in our day. But we have to think, how do we be God's people among a Gentile nation? If this is the, the reality around us, how do we be this kind of people? How do we live as a city within a city? How do we remain true to what God has called us to do amongst a pagan nation? How do we do that? And this problem isn't going away. It's just going to get worse. We have to give our time to thinking about how we live as God's people among even the moral crisis that we see today. Now listen. Now listen. Many of us right now, I'm sure, in this room are thinking survival. How do I survive as a Christian in a pagan nation? How do we survive in times like this? How can I, and yes, I'm being a little, um, I'm implying a little bit with this statement, how can I dance the line of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Caesar so that I can keep my job, keep my house, keep my security, keep my family, keep my money? How can I dance the line of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to our culture, if you will, so that I can keep my job in my house and so on and so forth? And I want to present to you this morning that this is not what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is not seeing how he can dance faithfulness to Artaxerxes and faithfulness to God. Now sure, he is shrewd in his approaching the king. Sure, he is wise and careful in what he says to the king. He doesn't, he doesn't just go in there and, Artaxerxes, this is what I want to do. I want to build an empire that will one day hopefully take you over. Like he's not... but. Yeah, does he want God's empire to take over? Yes, absolutely. So is he careful about what he does? Yes, but he's not thinking survival. Nehemiah is thinking kingdom. Nehemiah is not thinking, how do I get by in this culture? He's thinking, how can I reform this culture? He's thinking, how can we be the people that loves God with everything? How can we expand God's kingdom? How can we bring more people into the kingdom of God where they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can we make God's glory shine among the nations? That's what Nehemiah is thinking. He's not thinking, how can I survive another day? He's saying, how can I make God's name great? How can I lead in a reformation? That's what he's asking. And what's interesting in Nehemiah is you will see him going after these walls and building these walls. But this is all climax. Nehemiah's concern is not primarily about walls and architecture. It's primarily about the heart of the people. So think about in our day. We can go after the red elephant or the libertarians or whatever we want to do. But at the end of the day, 
If heart change doesn't take place, no political party, no legislation is going to make a bit of difference. People's hearts have to be changed. So then we ask this question, and that's what I want to ask today. How can we lead in a reformation? How can we lead as a people seeking reformation? We can't think in terms of just rules to make people live righteously. We must think in terms of heart reformation that births righteousness. Your kids need new hearts. Your co-workers need new hearts. Your neighbors need new hearts. You might need a new heart. We must think, how can I lead in a reformation right here in the context that God has placed me? My workplace, my home. How can I lead in a reformation in my home? How can I lead in a reformation in my own heart? How can I lead in a reformation with my neighbors? How can I lead in seeing reform? What are we saying? How can I lead in helping people become lovers of God? How can I lead in helping people love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And all that that implies and all that that entails. So my goal this morning is... So hopefully with the text, uh, that's to help the text, help us see the text, that would inspire us to lead out in reformation, to, to lead out, not to just try and get by. Christians don't just get by. Followers of Jesus lead. And a leader sees the vision, prepares for the mission, faces opposition, and brings others along as they partner, as partners in the mission. So here's what happens. This is a little bit leading us up to Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Nehemiah hears of the terrible news, right? The city's in ruin. It's, it's falling apart. It's, it's, the gates are broken. And, and it's the destruction is all around it. So Nehemiah hears this news at the beginning of chapter 1. Then Nehemiah has a deep conviction about the way things should be. This is not the way it should be. And he is heartbroken about the way things are. And he prays. We see that Nehemiah prays for four months. After praying for four months, he then goes to Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes. And in a spirit of continual communion with God, he asks, can I go do something about this city? And it is given to him, as he requested, to go rebuild Jerusalem. Something that would have really been unheard of. So now, with the king's blessing, he sets out to rebuild the wall. It's probably roughly a month's dirt journey, so we're probably like five Six months, somewhere like that, right into the book of Nehemiah. Probably a month's journey, he shows up. So here we go, Nehemiah chapter 2, 9 through 10 is where we'll start, and, and we'll work our way through the whole passage, although I'm not going to read the whole passage to begin with. 9 through 10, he says this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Let's stop right there. 
I want us to see as we work through this passage all the way through verse 20 how mission gets led. How do we lead in the mission of reformation? First of all, leading a reformation necessitates vision. We've already talked about this, so I, I am kind of relying on some of the verses that we've already talked about to, to prove this point. But we are leading a reformation that necessitates vision. You have to have an idea of where you're going. You have to have a vision for, for what should be. So let me ask this question. Where are you headed in life right now? What's the vision you have for just your life? Do you have a vision for your life? Have you thought about having a vision for your life? What is God's vision for your life? Is it the same as your vision? What defines the sense of where you're going? It's a thinking through scripturally informed vision. You know, I was really encouraged as I did my retreat at the beginning of January and used a, a fellow pastor's uh, kind of guide for that time. One of the things was after assessing which areas of your life needed most work on, whether that's marriage or parenting or, or physical health or one of those things, to write a vision for that. But the encouragement was to search the Scriptures and let the Scriptures define the vision for that area of your life. So what defines the sense of where you're going? How about the vision that you have for the people around you? I think even as, a, even as a lady, as a wife, what's the vision you have for your kids, certainly, but what's the vision you have for your husband? How are you going to partner with him? What's your vision for that? You know, I want to remind us that we must have settled convictions that are informed by the Scriptures. We must have. I mean, we live in a culture, we live in a Christian culture where the convictions that are most deeply held to us are getting to the couch quick enough so I can watch my show. Or when that person doesn't use their turn signal and cuts me off in traffic. We have certainly have convictions about those things. But we must have settled convictions about what God has called us to be about. You know, it's once said that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time, right? I'm afraid many of us live every day aiming at nothing. We go to bed thinking, wow, this has been a good day. I hit nothing. Or at best, our aim is to get through the day so that we can rest on the couch. All right, let me make a couple other comments here. In our culture, those in leadership, at our workplaces, in our homes, uh, and, and this, is, this is setting us up for Nehemiah, it, the people who lead in our homes, people that lead in our workplaces, tend to be the people with the biggest personalities, right? Tend to be the people with the biggest personalities, the, the loudest voice, the squeaky wheel, you know, so on and so forth, right? The biggest personalities, those who are the loudest, those who can command the people's attention, in the home, many women, even in this church, lead because they have a stronger personality. Right? I might have just made a couple toes red, but that's okay. 
But leadership is not about the strength of your personality, but it's about the depth of your conviction. Right? This is not built around Nehemiah, the great and powerful commanding leader. Neither was it with Moses. Right? Moses says, God, I can't speak. Aaron's going to have to speak for me. And so Nehemiah is not here as the great, you know, uh, equivalent to King Artaxerxes, and I'm going to go build my people. No, it's Nehemiah the cupbearer, trembling before the king. I, God, you're going to build this wall. Nehemiah has settled convictions, deep convictions. And leadership is not about the strength of your personality, but about the depth of your conviction. And I'm afraid that many of us let other people lead around us, even men in the home, thinking that I've got to have this big, strong personality, but it's, it's not because we have a weak personality, but it's because the depth of our convictions is quite shallow. We have to have depth, of our, depth to our convictions. Now, something else I want us to see is that the difference between a non-leader and a leader we think about Nehemiah, what is setting Nehemiah apart as the one who the story is centered around, ultimately centered around God, but the character in the story is Nehemiah, I think as a Christ type to come, as an example of the Christ to come, but he is, he is setting this, well, what else do we see about Nehemiah? A reformer, as we think about this idea of reformer, a reformer sees the vision, we've already talked about this, has heartbreak about the vision, and then senses a call to do something about it. Now the only difference between a reformer and one who leads is that the leader sees the vision, feels the heartbreak, senses the call before other people do. Who's the one that senses, sees the need, senses, feels the heartbreak, senses the call here first? It is certainly Nehemiah. A leader sees it and then calls other people into action to accomplish it. As I was reflecting through this, one thing that came to mind I don't think in terms of a reformation in our own heart. So how are you leading in reformation of your own heart, your own life? Are you leading your own heart to reformation, or is it always someone else? Right? Is it always someone else helping you along? Now that helping you along needs to be there. But let me ask, are you typically the first person to see how your life is not the way it should be and seek reformation for it? Or is it more often someone else having to help you see that? Now, I, I, here's what I, 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 I want to nuance this a little bit. We need the body. We need people around us. We need that. But what I'm trying to push towards is a personal responsibility to do that, to seek reformation, to lead in it in your own heart, to see it first or see it oh, see it and that's not going to be the case always and that's certainly God's grace to us there's times in my own life where I just do not see the sin and it takes a brother to point it out to me thank goodness for that we need that but I'm just trying to drive at we should regularly daily even through communing with God we should be doing this in such a way that we see how things are not as they should be in our lives and then seek the reformation by the power of the Holy Spirit how do we do this? We do this in prayer. We do this by studying the Word. Daily, communing with God. How are you, God? How, how are things not as they should be? 
seeing it first. All right. All that stuff. Let's think about Nehemiah's vision, okay? What was Nehemiah's vision? So all this that we've been talking about so far, a sense of where you're going, a vision for how things should be, it's being the first one to see. Let's think about Nehemiah's vision. I want to go to Psalm 48, 8 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there really quick. Go ahead. Otherwise, check it out later. Verse 8, he says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. And Mount Zion, I think, uh, we know, is, is Jerusalem. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. I think this is Nehemiah's vision for the city. The capital city of Government, the capital city of worship. All of this city's architecture declared God's greatness. It declared God's greatness because it represented that God's steadfast love was with them, that His promise was being fulfilled, or promises were being fulfilled, and His power was with His people. So Nehemiah's not just concerned about the citadels and all these great things, but when you get there to the end, that that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever, and He will guide us forever. So the city was, was symbolic, was representative, was even a display of God's love for His people and His guidance of them forever and ever, and as a display and as an encouragement to then tell the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I had a thought just pop into my mind is. Like, if we as, like, I think as parents, if, and even if you're not a parent, like, if, if we are building the right walls and building the right things and declaring that God's glory and display can be declared in our own lives, guess what we get to tell the next generation? Well, what do you want to tell your kids about? How you build a nice big house and how you amassed great wealth? Or about how God radically changed your life and displayed His glory through your heart, through your wickedness? What do you want to tell your kids about? What's worthy of being told generation after generation after generation? All right, that was a side note. I was free. <clears throat> Next, he, he saw that the city was not as it should be, but it wasn't really, again, he wasn't concerned about his architecture. What he was concerned about is where is God? He, he saw the city, it's in ruin, but where's God? And, and, and Nehemiah was not thinking, where is God in the sense that God has abandoned us? But where's the picture displaying the greatness of God? Where's the picture declaring the glory of God? That was Nehemiah's concern. He was concerned about the welfare. As you saw at the end of verse 10, he was concerned about the welfare of Israel as it declared the greatness of God among the nations. That was his concern. His vision 
was there at the end of verse 4, as someone seeking the welfare of the people of Israel. Now that was stated in the simplistic terms of probably of Sunballad and, um, and uh, whatever the other dude's name was, uh, Tobiah. Sunballad and Tobiah. They're concerned, they're just concerned about the welfare of these people. Well, yeah, Nehemiah is. It's a whole lot more than that, but Nehemiah certainly is. His vision is that God is powerful, that God loves His people, and that He will establish His city and people forever. This is God's vision. This is Nehemiah's vision as he understands it from God's Word. But this is not the way it is. He doesn't see this. The city is not displaying this, and so he seeks to do something about it. Now as we think about our vision as a church, We don't talk about our vision statement enough, but just to repeat it, our vision is to see the gospel renovate everything, ourselves, our families, our church, our city, and our world by people living out their gospel identity, who they are in Christ, in their everyday rhythms. So living it out in the things we do every single day, living out who we are in Christ every day, and as we do that, we're seeking to bring about the renovation of everything or the reformation of of ourselves, our families, our church, and our city, and our world. Now, I want to introduce you to a concept in the Old Testament, the idea of shalom. Shalom, we tend in simplistic terms to think of it as just, it just means peace. Just peace to you, like we would say, like blessings to you, you know, peace to you. When I was in Israel back in eighth grade, I remember everyone said shalom, shalom. Biblically, shalom means much more than the idea of just peace. I want to read to you Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so we're in exile, followers of God living in exile. He says this to them, you who are in exile, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." So this idea of shalom represents God's vision for a society, for a city, for a country, for a nation. Shalom represents God's vision that there would be no broken homes, that there would be no crime, that there would be no poverty, that the city would be filled with joy, love, and peace. And the idea here in Jeremiah is that as you live in a pagan city, You can seek the welfare of that city, and as you do it, you will benefit as well. God's people were supposed to bring about shalom wherever they went. So you think about this. Does your life bring about shalom wherever you go? Are you bringing about God's vision for society wherever you go, whether that's at the restaurant when your, you know, one and a half year old leaves 
food all over the place. Like, are you loving your neighbor? Are you bringing about the idea of shalom? Are you loving your neighbor, the server in this case, by just leaving all of the junk lay all over the floor? Is that caring for them? Is that bringing about shalom? Are you seeking the broken marriages that you work with to, to try and help bring about shalom and peace and joy to those marriages? I think if we open our eyes, we'll see the brokenness around us. What Christians have done for such a long time, we just try to isolate ourselves from all of that. We think if we can just build a big enough of a hedge where we don't have to see any of it, we can, it's not really there, right? It's kind of like a, like a one-year-old who doesn't understand if they can't see it, it, it could still be there, right? We as Christians do the same thing. If I can't see the brokenness around me, that must mean it's not there. No, it's there. And we as Christians have been called to engage that as citizens ultimately of heaven who are citizens here how do we live this way here? And so this is our vision for our church. That's really what our vision statement says. It just adds some helpful tools in there too. It is that we desire to bring about shalom wherever we go. And how are we going to do this? We're going to live like Jesus in everything we do. <laughs> Remember those, those old bands, right? What would Jesus do? Maybe in some ways our vision statement could just be that. Don't start that, okay? We don't, don't. Get that out of your mind. I probably shouldn't have even said that. No, we'll get bands that say, instead of WWJD, they say, to see the gospel renovate everything, and it may have to be in real small font, and all the way around. This is our vision as a church. Our aim is no different. We are exiles in Beaver Creek, Fairborn, Riverside, Oakwood, Vandalia, Kettering. We are exiles here, and we want to see, through the gospel, God renovate everything. We want to see God's vision for society come about. All right, so vision. Not only does a leader have to have a vision, but he also must prepare for the mission. So he has to have a vision for the mission, and he has to have preparation for the mission. Mission gets led as preparation is made. Preparation is key. Preparation is important. You've already seen Nehemiah spend four months preparing just to go talk to Artaxerxes. Now I think if we understand historically who Artaxerxes was, I, I probably would have spent like three years praying. Uh, but uh, maybe Nehemiah was a little more confident in God than I am. I would probably have been working on that for a while. Artaxerxes was, uh, there's a reason why Artaxerxes was king for as long as he was. If you go back, even just Wikipedia, like the history, like you'll see dudes in there for like six months. Six months. And, I don't, and Artaxerxes' reign was, well, at this point it's 20 years, right? You got you know, the son killing off the father, and this, you know, that's... The mission gets led as preparation is made. We talk about that stuff later. Nehemiah 2, verse 11 through 16. So going on, he says, So I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one that my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley of the gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken. Hey, look, some of you all have a two-year-old mind too, just like I did. 
the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. All right, Let's, we're going to have to f- fly through this. We need to make an assessment, all right? I know it sounds super practical, but we need to make an assessment. If we're going to lead in Reformation, we've got to make an assessment. Nehemiah arrives in the city and begins to look around. He knows what the Bible says about the city. city. This is likely, in all likelihood, the first time Nehemiah has probably ever seen the city of Jerusalem. He was born in exile. He wasn't born in Jerusalem and then kicked, out of Israel, then kicked out of Jerusalem. No, he was born in exile. He's probably never seen the city except what he's read in the Scriptures. So he goes, he sees it, he assesses. He's heard of its greatness. And it's not looking this way. But before doing anything, he walks around, he rides around and assesses the situation. It's a very practical thing for us to think about. And the second thing he wants to see is to understand what's at stake. Nehemiah understands that God's name is at stake in Jerusalem. It's in rubble. It's in ruin. For those who love God's name, this is intolerable. For those who love God, this is intolerable that God's name would be trampled on. Now we think about God's name is now at stake in the lives of His people. Those who are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. We can... Draw some great application from there. We don't have time for right now. Again, don't forget the preparation Nehemiah did even before the city walkthrough, even before going to Artaxerxes. What is Nehemiah clearly is a dude who studied the Word. He's clearly a dude who prayed. We've been, Rusty and I have been tossed around this term a lot lately, the idea of being a student of the Bible. To be a student of the Bible. Jesus' followers will be students of His Word. Nehemiah was a student of the Bible. All right, so let's think about this for a second. If, if you don't know if you're a follower of Christ or you think you are but not, maybe not sure, maybe your life lays in ruins. Maybe it's in ruin. You need to know, the one thing you need to know this morning is that there is one who is more zealous for your life and it being built the way it should be your heart being built in the way it should be, there's one more zealous for that than Nehemiah was for the walls of Jerusalem. One who is more zealous for God's kingdom than Nehemiah. Jesus is his name. Jesus died on the cross to give you a new heart and to rescue your life. The Bible tells us if we repent of our sins and place our faith in his payment for those sins, that he will rescue us from the ruin of our life. Now, if you're certain or pretty sure you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you this question. What walls or gates need work in your life? Do an assessment. Make an assessment. Marriage, children, to play on the idea of gates. How about the eye gate or the ear gate? Are there things going into your ears that should not be going into your ears? I remember a youth group when I was a kid. Oh, you got to burn all your secular CDs, right? What's your ear gate? 
Just shout out to a handful of you. But the eye gate, that's probably a very, very important one for us to think about. But what gates, what walls, what, what needs work? Make an assessment. You need to make preparation. You need to take a journey around the city and see what's not right. Journey around your city and see what's not right, both in your heart, your family, your church, your neighborhood. Drive around, see what's not right. Some of you need to take people, all of us I would say, need to take people with us and ask them to make an assessment. Speaking to my life, what do you see in my life? Welcome counsel into our lives. Welcome assessments from fellow believers who love us. All right, so we as followers of Jesus understand that our Savior's name is at stake in the world. We have to see that. It's not with walls and gates that His name is made famous. It's with lives that now love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength that display the power of God to rescue a wicked people. That's what displays the greatness of our God today. And I would make the argument that even that's even what displayed the greatness of God in this day as well. But we need to get an honest assessment of the city around us, the people at our workplace, our neighbors. And I just wanted to encourage us, church. We live, we live in a pretty transient society, just in general, particularly in Dayton. I want us to think about if we're going to to make an assessment and bring about reformation where we're at. I want to encourage us to put down roots and say, I'm here to reach these people. This job, this maybe, maybe a pay raise at a different job isn't worth leaving. Like maybe it's not worth going to a different job so that you can impact the people that God's called you there. But maybe God is calling you on to put down roots someplace else. But certainly, put down roots for God's calling you to reach a people. To bring about reformation. Alright, so if we're going to lead in reformation both in our hearts and the world around us, we must have God's vision for the way things should be, and we must be making assessments and seeing where they are not. We need to be preparing for these things. Next, we must lead others to seek the vision. Leaders realize that mission is a community effort. Nehemiah couldn't build the walls in the city. It had to be a community effort. And I think we, in our very individualistic, self-righteous, i got to hide my sin, Christian culture in which we live, we think the Reformation in our own hearts is also an individualistic task. But it indeed is not. The walls in your life, the gates in your life, the Reformation in your life is just as much a community effort as it was for Nehemiah. I'm, I'm not going to like give a bunch of proof texts for that, just for the record, but we can talk later. But Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 through 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God. 
that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Let's think about this for a few moments. It's a community project. Nehemiah understood that what he was going to do was not a task to be done alone. The people of God, as, the, as a people, must accomplish the mission of God as a people. We do this together. So having studied the Bible, prayed, and acted, now Nehemiah will summon others to join him in pursuing God's kingdom. Come along. I'm, I'm not, this is for all of us. This is not just my task. This is for the people of God. So what does Nehemiah does? He does a couple things. One, he inspires them with the problem. He inspires them with the problem. How is that for our day, right? You want to inspire people with positivity, right? I've heard that before. Matt, you need to be more positive. Yeah, probably so. But he's inspired with it. He's, he sees the problem. The walls are in ruin. It's disastrous. Come, let us build the wall. That's the problem. Now, Nehemiah's short-term vision was restoration of the wall. Nehemiah's long-term vision was restoration of the hearts. We'll get to that in a few chapters. But he inspires them with the problem, and then he encourages them with hope. He inspires them with the problem. He encourages them with hope. What's the hope? God's with us. God's with us. I'm sure what happened, I mean, we're speculating now, but I'm sure what happened is Nehemiah probably recounts for them the story and his time, the story of his time with King Artaxerxes. Now you got to remember, these people are living in the city, and years before this, they started rebuilding the city. Remember, remember back in Ezra, they started building the city, and then the king puts it all to a halt. And so Nehemiah comes in many years later and says to them, hey, we're going to rebuild the city. And here's what happened. I went before the king in prayer. And he says to me, why is your face sad? And I told him. And he said, all right, go do what you need to do. What do you need to do it? And Nehemiah gets what he needs. And now I'm, I stand here before you. This all happened. Let's build the city. And I'm sure these people are going, whoa. Like hope in God, right? Now, now can... Yeah, all right, we, we got to keep going. But God is with us. God is with us. He encourages them with hope. Next, He organizes the work. All right, so here's going to be your treatment of Nehemiah 3, okay? It's going to be your treatment. If you want to study Nehemiah 3 more, I'm going to give it probably not sufficient time, but it's going to get the next three minutes. In Nehemiah 3, 50 different people are mentioned in this chapter. It's a very diverse group of people. Different people from different towns. People with different skills. People from different families. Mostly lay people. Mostly not clergy or big time leaders. The lay people are the ones who are getting this job done. So he's made the assessment. He's made preparation. Now he's enlisting people to do it. And he takes all these people and the lay people are the ones doing it. Lay people are the ones doing the ministry, if you will. They're doing the work. I want to think of this idea of leaders and leading in these kinds of things. Leaders don't need titles. 
They don't need recognition. We don't earn people's following because we have a title. We have deep convictions and gather people around to do those deep convictions. But in Nehemiah 3, these people are working close to their homes. I think that's something worthy of noting. There's different people working in various parts of the town. So this person lives close to this gate, so he's going to work on that gate. And this person lives close to this part of the wall, so he's going to work on that part of the wall. Now, in order for the vision to move forward, in order for the mission of God to move forward, it can't just happen with pastors. It has to happen with God's people. In order for our church to see new people in this congregation that are loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the people have to lead out in that. Rusty and I's joy is to get to equip you to do that and to encourage you to do that. I want to read to you from an English historian, Arnold Toynbee. He says this, Apathy can only be overcome by enthusiasm, and enthusiasm can only be aroused by two things. First, an ideal which takes the imagination by storm, and second, a definite, intelligible plan for carrying that ideal into practice. And my prayer for us is that God's ideal for the way things should be is taking your imagination by storm. I pray then that Nehemiah is giving us a plan. The last thing I want to say to you to point out from Nehemiah here, Nehemiah spent all this time in prayer. Spent all this work in prayer. And, and I want to remind us that prayer is not a substitute for hard work. Okay? I grew up in Lots and lots of, well, not lots and lots of churches, but in a handful of churches where we prayed a whole lot and did a whole lot of nothing. Um, and I don't want to be mean, but prayer is not a substitute for hard work. Prayer, though, I heard this from another pastor say this, prayer is the background music to the hard work. Prayer is something that is playing all the time while you are working and you are planning. You're assessing and you're working. Prayer is the thing that is, is the background music to the process, to the work. I think that's what it means to pray without ceasing, to, to commune with God always. It doesn't mean you have your, head, your hands folded, you know, like this, and your eyes closed, and Jesus take the wheel, right? Like, it's not that. This is communing with God all the time. All right, we should get to our last point here. So leaders must have a vision. They must make preparation. They list others to accomplish that vision. And leaders also expect opposition to the mission. Leaders expect opposition to the mission. Now in chapter 2, we see evidence of the opposition. And uh, earlier in chapter 2, you see his ex expectation of the opposition to the mission. That's why he asks Artaxerxes for some papers, for some proof. So he's making a plan because he expects the opposition. Now here in chapter, the end of chapter 2, we see the opposition to the mission. So look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, so heard of what they were doing, heard of the plans, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? 
Are you rebelling against the king? Then, then I replied to them. Listen to Nehemiah's reply. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I mean, think about these words. <laughs> wow. All right, so there will be opposition to building God's kingdom. There will be. Just thinking even in God is doing some wonderful things around our body over these past couple months. I've even in my own life have sensed and, and experienced some opposition and and it's but it, it's good to see that God's work in all of that too and, and 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 everything's good, but like it's just you see God's opposition. You see it when God's building his kingdom. What I want you to see, tying this back to Genesis, is see the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's what you have going on here. God is going to build His kingdom, right? That's the seed of the woman. This is the king who will come and redeem God's people. This is, this is God's line and God's plan. And then you have the seed of the serpent, all those who will oppose God's plan. Right? So Cain and, and his line, they will all oppose God's plan. You see these two seeds, these two lines at war at this point. And they say to him, they say that pursuing the kingdom of God could be rebellion against the reigning power on earth. Don't miss that. Because we used to live in a country that at least on the surface level valued the idea of Christianity. More and more so our culture though interprets and is interpreting faithfulness to God and Christ as rebellion against the governing authorities. This is coming in increasing measure. I'm not standing up here to scare you, because here's the next thing I want to say, is I want to remind you that our biggest problem is not the opposition of the surrounding peoples, but our biggest problem is the same problem that Nehemiah recognized in chapter 1, and that is God's kingdom will not be built around us if our sin in our lives has its way. Our biggest problem is not the people, our biggest problem is not the governing authorities, our biggest problem is our own sinful hearts. This is why Nehemiah starts with repentance and faith back in chapter 1. Then I want us to see though, so that's the problem, inspire with the problem, right? Here's the hope. We must have a bold response. Nehemiah doesn't fear the king, he fears God. God, all right? That's something really important to pick up on here. I think it's interesting, even though the papers, uh, I'm sure, have been served, if you will, to Sanballat and, and uh, Tobias, but at this point, ne- Nehemiah doesn't go, all right, I'm going to be the lawyer. Here's my papers. Take a look at the papers. King Artaxerxes said we can do it, so get off our back. What's he say? God will make us prosper. God will do it. God will do it. He will make us prosper. How about that? God will do it. His confidence has been made strong by the study of the Bible. And the power of the Spirit. He knows what God has promised to do. He, He knows what God has done thus far. He is certain of it. Not because he feels good about it. Not because he's he's got this. You know, this just awesome peace about it. He, he knows what God has said. 
He's confident in what God will do. He's confident that God's desire is for His city to shine His name. If you do a little bit of study on the idea of grant us success, the, the Hebrew word there kind of speaks of the one who meditates day and night on Torah prospering. Like the one who studies day and night on the Torah prospers. That's the idea here. Grant us success. It, it rec- the, what the flavor, if you will, of this passage or this, this verse is that he is studying on the Torah and meditating on it day and night, and, and this is the one who will prosper. He will have success. Not because he's earned it, but because he knows God's plan. So he doesn't fear the king, he fears God. His confidence has been made strong by the study of the Torah. So what is Nehemiah ultimately saying here? He's saying that God is the reformer here. And this is what Nehemiah, here at the very end, God is the one who's reforming. God is the builder, God is the doer, God is the leader. God is doing this. Not Artaxerxes' permission. That's not doing this. Not my strength. Not our people. We're not going to take you by sword. No, God will make us prosper because this is God's project. This is God's plan. God is sovereign and He will make it happen. God is the one in control. God is the one leading the mission. All right. A couple closing thoughts here. Think about our mission as a church. Our mission is to see the gospel renovate everything, ourselves, our families, our church, our city, and our world by people living out their gospel identity and their everyday rhythms. As mission, we think when we think about mission, we often think about it, well, that's the person who packs up their clothes, gets in the boat, and goes across the country, right? Or goes across the, the seas, and that's a missionary, right? Well, we know that's not the case. Mission is about crossing the street. It's about strategically eating lunch with a coworker. We need and want and should develop this idea of a I am sent mentality. We should all live with the idea that I am sent to do this. I'm, I'm not just, it's not just those who go to Haiti or go to Africa that are sent. We are all sent. You should feel sent when you leave from these doors every Sunday, when you leave from house gathering every Tuesday, when you get up in the morning with a new set of minutes and daylight to breathe. You live with the idea that I'm sent. You know, the author of, you know, in our discipleship groups, our DNA groups, um, the author of a lot of that, his name's Tim Chester, he wrote this. He said that the church is not an event, it's a community. Mission is not an event, it's a lifestyle. We are called to live ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. So when we do this, uh, end quote, when we do this, we bring shalom to the world around us. We see the gospel renovate everything. And if you have an I am sent mentality, then you can start thinking strategically about the things like the following. Like, where has God placed me? Where is God opening doors? What is God doing in my neighborhood? What is God doing at my workplace? Certainly, trusting God, He's sovereign over all this, but if we live with an I am sent mentality, then what does God have for me to do in these places? What's my task for today? How am I going to move this relationship one step further down this road? 
So last big thought. Nehemiah seeks to build the city, not because the architecture was important, because of who the architecture pointed to. Okay? Let's talk about this for just a brief second. So Jesus comes and claims to be the true temple, right? He comes to be the temple of God. He, he is the one in which God dwells. But He's rejected. His people did not receive Him. The Jews did not want Him. Nehemiah's hope was in the one to come. And we must remember this. Our hope is not in living in a great city or working in a great place. Our hope is not in having clean neighborhoods or having streets that we can walk on or having bosses that we like. Our hope is in Jesus who rescues hearts and reforms them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our hope is in Jesus, the one to whom the architecture points. So as we seek God's vision... As we, see, sorry, seek, as we seek to see God's vision become reality around us, this budding vision points us to the one who is coming to ultimately bring God's kingdom. So as we see our families reformed, and we see our churches reformed, we see our community, these things do not point to the good that's in and of ourselves. They point to the one who is coming to ultimately finish the job. And the one who ultimately is doing the job. So let's be a people seeking reformation all around us in such a way that it points to the work of the Redeemer in our hearts. We live lives oftentimes in such a way that we look, we just look like better moral people. If that. We should be living in ways that the architecture of our lives point to hope in the Redeemer. That my marriage is the way it is, not because I'm awesome. I'm, my marriage is the way it is because God's awesome. Because God has taken my wicked, stinking, nasty, filthy heart and gave me the heart of His Son. That's why my marriage, my, my parenting is not perfect, but it, it looks this way because God has taken the filthy, wicked, nasty heart that's selfish, that wants to reign and rule itself. He has taken that and replaced it with the heart of His Son. Let's be a people about that. Let me read to you Hebrews 13, 14. It says, For here we have no lasting city. But what? We seek the city to come. Right? We seek the city to come. Let's pray. Father, may we be a people seeking the city to come. May we be a people that um, that are not focused on building our kingdom here, but building your kingdom here. I know, Father, that's ultimate, sometimes a hard line to draw. But, Father, let us be a people that that forsake the building of what would bring us glory and embrace the building of what brings you glory. Whether that means sacrificing time, sacrificing money, sacrificing dreams. Father, I'm reminded that the one who carries a cross is not concerned about his plans for tomorrow, but is concerned about what's happening at the moment. Father, we are, as ones who are called to carry our cross, we are 
called to be ones who are dead to our dreams and dead to our desires and alive to your dreams and to your desires, Father. So, Father, let us, let us be a people that recognize your reforming work in our hearts. And then in light of that reforming work in our hearts that we seek, we seek to see reformation happen around us in the lives of those around us, in the workplaces that we're in, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Father, that we would catch a vision that, that your ideal, Father, that's your vision for us, for this place, that will become a reality, Father, in time. But let that vision take us, take our imaginations by storm. And let us be, as your servant Nehemiah was, focused on the vision. And so, Father, give us, lastly I pray, give us deep convictions that are informed and guided and rooted in your word. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.